Let's pray. Good morning, Father. Thank you for this day. Thanks for a nice warm place where, Father, we can study your word and worship together. Lord, I pray, um, I just pray for the teaching and preaching of your word this morning. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would superintend not just my words, but oversee our hearts. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds and convict us where we need to be, but also encourage us on the same on the same end. I pray that God ultimately, after we hear this message, we will want to follow you more. We will want to learn more and be more like your son. Only you can accomplish those things, so we leave them at your feet and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I know it's Halloween weekend. I know it is, and the subject matter of today's sermon was not planned, believe it or not, but it, um, it just so happened to turn out that way. We're going to talk about murder this morning, be quite exciting message for Halloween. So to begin on this vein, I would like to ask the question, why is blood red? The science of blood is not hard to understand. If you would look it up, it, they basically say your hemoglobin, which have hemis, attach oxygen cells to iron cells, which cause iron molecules, which cause the redness in the blood. That's the scientific reason. There's some um, uh, color theory reasons for red. Red is the color of passion. It's the color of love, anger. Political scientists say red means revolution. Psychologically, red is war, a sign of war. Philosophically, red is the first fundamental color. Photographers say red is the color of warmth. It can mean many things. But I'm a biblical teacher, so why? I must ask the question, why did God make blood red? I think one important reason to show us how serious sin is. It is meant to shock, repel. It's meant to horrify you. When you see red blood on a white shirt with a wound, it's meant to shock you. It's meant to wake us up when we violate one of God's laws and how horrendous and horrific it is. It is meant to scream... God's disgust in a nonverbal language. Today in one in our sermon we have the first recorded premeditated murder. Human blood will be spilled for the first time in man's history. And after the first murder happens, we are going to find that God says to the murderer, the blood of the victim is crying out to me from the ground. So, I believe blood is red because it's meant to speak to us. We're going to read all about it in Genesis 4. So, if you could open up to Genesis 4, we're going to begin reading 1 through 8. The title is In Cold Blood. A perfect Halloween sermon, if I do say so myself. I didn't plan it that way, it just so happened to be the way it is. I did it for Jess Hannah, actually. Starting in verse 1, 
Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. That means he slept with Eve. It's interesting, this word knew means that it was an intimate relationship. Not, he didn't force himself on her. It's an intimate relationship, intimate sexual relationship. Now, Adam knew his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So, Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up, against his brother Abel and killed him. It's the first murder. Last week we ended with Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. And now we find them settling down outside of Eden. And they're going to start fulfilling their mandate, it says in verse 1, of being fruitful and multiplying. And so Eve has two boys, two children. And so we start with this story at the tale of two sons. It's a tale of two sons, or two brothers, tale of two brothers. The first brother, of course, is Cain, and the second brother is Abel. The story is all about them and what happened to them and how sin has affected them. Let's just get a little background on what the names mean. It says in Scripture that the word Cain in the Hebrew the etymology, that means the root of the word, means Eve is saying, I have brought forth a man with the help of God. But this idea that I labored to bring forth a man. In fact, Cain himself becomes known as a man of labor, a man of the soil, a man of hard work, a man of calloused hands, a man of dirty fingernails. The second son is named Abel. Abel, his name means a weak one, like a Broken reed that's blown over by the wind. He's a gentle-souled man. His job was a shepherd of sheep. A gentle shepherd. Very intriguing. The time frame of this narrative says in the course of time. So we don't know how long this course is. Some scholars say it's a seven course of time. Maybe it's a Sabbath, seven year. We don't know how old. But sure, they're... They're older men. This probably has taken place over the course of many years from the time they are kicked out of Eden till we get to this story. But it's all about one single moment. We're brought to a single moment that happens. The time isn't to be specific, but the moment is to be highlighted, and that's what we're about. It says that they both went to worship God in verse 4. They both decided to worship God. It is not known where they went to worship God. It is not known how 
they proceeded to worship God. All we know is that they wanted to worship God. There's a hint, or you can infer from the book of Hebrews, that they were taught by their mom and dad, Cain and Abel, but this is just about worship. They came to God to give Him worship. In verse 3 it says, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. He's a man of the ground, a man of the soil, so he gave God what he had. What he was able to cultivate. Abel, says in verse 4, brought the firstborn of his flock, so he brought a, a, a sheep, a lamb, firstborn, and he also offered fatty portions. Like Cain, he gave what he had to give. So really, they both gave to God what they had to give. But the writer says in verse 4 that the Lord had regard or accepted Abel's offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Abel gets the thumbs up. That's good. Cain gets thumbs down from God. This is where the story really starts. This is the point. And before we take, go further down a road to murder, we need to stop and ask the question, what constitutes an acceptable offering? Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's wasn't? What, what, what are the specific things we can learn from this or take from it? You could ask it like this, how do you bring pleasure to God with your worship? How do you give Him an acceptable sacrifice or offering? I have three suggestions from the story you could say maybe the reason maybe the reason Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was not was because he offered the first of his animals. He offered and said, verse 4, the firstborn of his flock. He gave to God first. First fruits, it's a principle of giving. All through the Bible, we are to consider God before anything else. That's why some people put aside 10% of their pay before they spend the rest called first fruits, tithing. Maybe Cain did not do that. Maybe he just gave him a common bunch of any old offerings out of his garden, out of the... Just, here God, take this. We don't know. But there is something throughout Scripture that says we should give God what's first. Wake up and give God your day. Give God the first of your pay. Give God your best. When you're, you have energy, not when you're tired. And maybe I'll say a prayer at night. The second possible reason Abel's offering was acceptable was because he gave the fatty portions. It says in verse 4, he gave their fat portions. Those are the portions that it says even the Levitical sacrifices, they would offer to God as a sweet aroma. You know when you make steak and it has fat on the edge and you put some salt on it, it's nice smell. Oh, that smells good. I, my daughter was working with Doug Kruger and they were making brisket yesterday and she smelled like brisket on the way home. I'm like, Ginger, you smell good. I, I mean, Jasmine, you smell good. Like brisket. You ought to sell that and bottle that as a perfume. It's a sweet aroma. He gave the best. And God knew it was Abel's best. Maybe Cain just gave his sloppy portions. Look, I want you to go to Malachi 1. This is a terrifying verse of Scripture. 
Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. He's a minor prophet, which means he doesn't have a lot to say as compared to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But what he says has a punch to it. Malachi's book is a forceful book. And he's talking about how Israel would bring their sacrifices. And Look at Malachi chapter 1. Specifically verse 12, 13, and 14. He's talking about how they'd come before to worship God. And he says, you profane basically the temple when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that it that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or is sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. What they're giving them is garbage. And they're saying, I have to do the duty of service I have to go to the temple because that's the religious thing to do, but I'm not going to give them my best. We do this all the time. I'll go to church, but man, I don't want to listen. I just want to get it over with. I don't care. Maybe I'll give a little bit of my money. Look at the end of verse 14. I'm a great king. Who are we serving? God. God. Are we giving him our best? Those, in a sense, are speculative. I was, if we go back to Genesis 4, we can't definitely say that's why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't. We're kind of judging by outward appearances. We're speculating on the way it's written. I mean, there's some hints that we can say that's definite, but it's still speculation. Too often we get caught up in the outward to judge whether something is acceptable worship or not. Because a person cries and they sing a song at church doesn't necessarily mean it's worship. Because somebody dresses up to church and has a look of solemnity on their face does not necessarily mean they're godly. I like what one writer says about this. He says it's silent on why it was accepted and perhaps the silence in the story is the message itself. Perhaps the fault of Cain is an internal one, an attitude that is only known by God. And I would say, I agree with that. I think every time we come to church, only God really knows your heart. Only God does. Even David said in Psalm 51, you really don't want sacrifices, God. What you want is a broken and contrite spirit. It's the issue of the heart. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward. So when you come to worship, we need to stop caring about how we look or be concerned how people think about us. We come alone to worship God. Not how people view us. Do I raise my hand so they think I'm holy or not? Do I show people, take my time getting out my tithe, and stretch, leaning over everybody to see what a good worshiper I am? Hebrews 11.4 does give us insight on the offering of Abel. And it says, when Abel offered his sacrifice, it was by faith. It was by faith. Simple. He believes that God is, 
and he believes that God can. That's all that faith is. I believe God is, and I believe God can do what he promised. I believe God can do who he is. He's powerful. I believe he exists. That's enough, and that's why we worship. And so I must pray, I must worship believing, and entrust him. But Cain didn't offer a sacrifice of faith. He just did it to do it, probably because he's supposed to. His mom and dad told him to. But this rejection of Cain is what began the road to murder. It started in his heart, and it started to bring images of fratricide. He wanted to kill his brother because he was accepted. Fratricide means to kill your brother. Why would anyone want to kill their brother? Why would anyone want to kill their fellow man? Actually, in prayer partners, we were talking about the rabbi the, or the, the synagogue yesterday where a guy comes in and shoots it up. Why would anybody do that? And they said, has times ever been this bad? And I said, yeah, it starts with Cain. It started with Cain. This problem all starts with Cain. Cain was a self-made man. He offered an offering based on his ability, his hard work, his competency, he was, and yet he was rejected by God. How dare God reject Cain's sacrifice? Who does God think he is? God? Who does God think he is by who he accepts and who he rejects? Rejection does not fare well with a man like Cain, a self-made man. Verse 5 says, he grew angry. He was angry, and his face fell. One writer said to drop and hide the face is more likely a sign of depression that led to anger. Depression is a sign that his pride was hurt. He was personally injured. Cain is personally hurt. He's upset, and he's offended by God's decision to favor his little brother Abel instead of him. How could Abel be favored? Abel was a weak and gentle little shepherd boy. He was a, Cain was a tough man of the soil. Why would God like that wimp? All he does is watch sheep. Cain works hard cultivating the land. His offerings were from his own sweat and tears. Abel just watches sheep. Probably chews on a beef jerky while they're just grazing in the grass. Cain plows. And so Cain is personally hurt. I think there's a lot of Cains in the church. You know how many years I've been going to this church singing, tithing? Nobody respects me. You know how many years I've been teaching Sunday school? You know how faithful my family's been over the years? We started this church. Why don't I get the recognition I deserve, the respect, the leadership? Why don't people see? Why aren't I elected deacon? This kind of thinking leads down a very bumpy and dangerous road. The road to murder starts with pride. Pride says, I deserve things. I deserve respect. I deserve God to honor me. I deserve Him to give me things. I deserve things because I'm important. And then it leads to jealousy. Jealousy is when somebody else gets what I want, I get mad, which is, angers the next, is the sign of jealousy. It's an outward sign of jealousy. 
And then if I let anger simmer and I don't deal with it, it starts acting out. Since I deserve it, since I want it, I'm just going to take it. Get rid of the person who has it. Herod wanted the rule over the Jews. And when he got wind of a prophecy of a possible Messiah being born in a no-name town of Bethlehem, why don't you just kill all the babies up to two? It's my throne. I'm going to be king. No baby from Podoc Bethlehem is going to take what I deserve. Pharisees didn't want a new rabbi. They had to get rid of this new teacher, this imposter named Jesus. So they took him late at night and hung him high in a cross, all because they were jealous and angry. Murder is just the final outcome of a prideful heart. I want you to notice that. Murder, people say, how could people be led to murder? I would never do that, but look where it starts. Are you proud? Then the seed is in there. The seed is there. I'll just I'll give you a sidebar. It's really strange. You guys, my son plays football on the Kent City football team. They captured this picture of him getting kind of, kind of kicked in the helmet. It wasn't that bad. But people want blood. <laughs> just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Murder is when I can't let it go. I deserve. I want. It's mine. Can you let things go or you hold grudges? Do you see people get a raise and you don't? You just stew. Whoo, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Actually, in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, 21 and 22, Jesus says, hatred and anger are akin to murder. So before you take that step, we have to, we have to um, be reminded that there is a point of no return. And God always gives you an out before you take that step. He did that for Cain. I want you to look at verse 7 real quick. See, this is called, I call verse 7, the verse that's the point of no return. God is a gentleman. We actually, Jared had to sing about his patience this morning. God is a gentleman. He doesn't force his will on us. And he does give us agency. He lets us make choices that are ours to own. He also tells us what's at stake before we decide. That's always true. God is patient. God gives us agency. But He also tells us there's consequences to be had if you ignore me. He's very clear. And before Cain makes the final choice to murder his brother, God speaks. Listen to what He says in verse 7. If you do well, meaning following my will, not get angry, Will you not be accepted? That word accepted, there's some disagreement by commentators, but the whole idea is if, if you repent, you'll be forgiven. If you turn, you'll be forgiven. You can re-worship. You can, you can still worship. It's not over. I can, I'll accept your, sacri- your next sacrifice. He'll forgive you. If you do not do well, if you do not repent, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Sin, you could say it in a Halloween voice, sin's desire is for you. It's to get you, hold you, and hold you captive. It's all an issue of repentance. What's your choice? 
God is still speaking before you choose a path that will cause sorrow and soul deformity. God, through His Spirit, and specifically through human conscience, will speak. You felt human conscience. You know. You know. The invisible road barrier that says to your heart, do not trespass. Don't go there. Don't do it. It is that feeling you get when you're considering going against God's clear will. And this voice is calm. This voice is kind. And it says, don't step through that door. Sin will pounce. It wants to put its chains on you. So please, please, don't go through that door. I once heard a preacher say, sin will let you, it's like, sin has a chain and it will let you make choices. And it kind of lets out that chain. Let's out that chain. Let's out that chain. And it waits till you make that one choice where it just then it tugs on it right at the time when it makes every, your life and everybody else around you be destroyed. Don't bite it. So please, please, please don't do it. Because sin wants to rule you. It's interesting, it says in Scripture there's two masters we can serve. Sin or God. There's only two. There's an illusion that, hey, I'm free to do what I want. I can be my own master. No, there's only two. Sin or God. Often you think you're the master, but it's sin is sin sneaky, works behind the door. And so only one of these two masters will rule you, and only one really loves you. That's the irony. So Cain listens to God in verse 7, weighs his options, and I think in between 7 and 8 is some of the darkest things going on in a man's heart. That often happens. It's the descent into darkness where your stomach twists and turns and you start scheming. How can I get that? How can I get that? I want that. Ah, no, you can't have that. Yeah, I want it. It's a weird time. It's where you're fighting God. And then you reach a point, Cain reaches a point where he makes a decision and walks through the door. So by the time we get to verse 8, he's made his decision. Some of you are still making a decision. Should I continue the path I've been or should I quit? Because once you walk through the door, it's not good. Not good. So verse 8 says, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. Hey, Abel, can I talk with you? Hey, let's go to my, uh, let's go to my back 40 and talk. Come on, I, let's just talk. And poor gullible Abel, sure, what do you want to talk about? What's up? When people plan evil, the innocent are always taken off guard. It's interesting even this thing about the synagogue. We're, all, we're already arguing, how do we prevent this from happening? Evil is unpreventable. People scheme. And when they want what they want and evil grabs you, you'll get it. It'll form and scheme strategize to get what it wants. And the innocent are always taken off guard. So while Abel's looking at Cain's new crop of wheat in his back 40, he gets knifed in the back. <clears throat> Silver blade to the kidney, another to the lung and the chest. The knife keeps striking, plunging deeper, each time drawing more blood. 
Can you see it shining red on the ground? Red blood. Can you see it all over Cain's hands, up his arms, on his clothes, splattered across his face? Do you hear the blood screaming? God does. He hears screams every time we sin. The word, it's interesting, the word for kill means this murder was intentional and it was a grisly murder. We can speculate about what happened next. Maybe a large hole was dug to hide the body. He washed the blood off on a nearby brook. Probably was shocked how bloody it is. He probably threw a knife over a cliff to try to hide it. And then taking a deep breath, combing his hair after he's leaving the brook, goes back to the fields to work. Like nothing happened. Nothing happened. All on the outside looks normal, but if you were to see inside of his soul, kind of like the worshiping Cain's heart has turned to stone. How can you tell? How can you tell when a heart turns to stone? Listen to the responses he gives to God. Starting in verse 9. And the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? Hey, Cain, where's your brother? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, you don't know. God sees everything. When, you, when your heart starts turning to stone, lies start flowing naturally from your lips. Cain is hiding his offense through the veil of fabrication and misdirection. Hey, honey, where, where have you been? John said you went to the bar after work. Did you go get drunk again? What are you, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, Susie, did you go out with that rotten boy I told you you can't date? What boy? I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, Tommy, I could have sworn I left a $20 bill up on the counter. Did you take it? Take, did I take what? A hard heart tells lies like a faucet pours out water. Do you lie all the time? If you do, oh man, be careful. Be careful. A hard heart deceives, it will not admit wrongdoing, and then it shifts blame. Listen to Cain. I don't know, and then he says, am I my brother's keeper? He's shifting blame. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, yeah, when you're the one who killed him, you are. <laughs> Absolutely. He's trying to say, hey, I'm not responsible for other people's decisions. That's halfway true. It's not fully true. There are times when we are, we are responsible for causing damage to other people. When we sell a lemon off a Craigslist or slander someone's character behind their back. Or we do anything to bring pain to another, we should take responsibility. Don't tell them to just lighten up. Grow thick skin. No, you offended someone. Take responsibility. I know I called them all kind of names and slammed them to the boss. I want the job. I deserve the job. I've worked hard. Don't blame me. No, you're responsible. If you keep reading, Cain's hardness even leads him to blame God. Look at what he says. Verse 10, the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood with your hand. I know what you did, Cain. You did it. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth, saying, you know what? You forfeited fruit from the ground. 
You're cursed. And Cain says, my punishment is greater than I, I can bear. You have driven me today away from the ground. God, see, you are the one that's cursing me. He's not taking responsibility. He's blaming God now. Be very careful when you start blaming God for your sorrow or blaming the church. A lot of people love to blame the church. They do wrong and then they say that church is full of hypocrites. People in a church aren't trying to judge people. Often that judgment is your own conviction. Be very careful how you talk about the church. Especially those who are trying to love you. When people are hardened by sin's deceit, they often will want you to feel sorry for the consequences that have come upon them. But they drew first blood. Like John Rambo. They drew first blood. Remember that, Jared? John Rambo? Do you never watch Rambo? I can't. That's sad. Staff meeting Tuesday, Rambo. <laughs> well, it's interesting what happens now. Cain's consequences are severe. He's told he's going to be a wanderer, as they should be severe. He murdered his brother. He murdered his brother. God's not being harsh. It's his own flesh and blood he murdered. He destroyed the image of God, and it's no small matter, and it never is. So God says he sends him from Eden, and he's going to be a wandering nomad. Cain can't bear the judgment. And so he wants, still wants God's protection. So verse 15, the Lord said, All right, all right. Anybody kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a mark on you, Cain, lest anybody attack you. What is that mark? I don't know. Was it a blemish? Was it a tattoo? Nobody knows. Was it just an aura? Don't touch Cain. No one knows. Now this is kind of, if we had time to speculate about what's going on, how in the world are there people around to know? Wasn't Cain and Abel the only ones alive? How are there going to be descendants? What's going on And I'm not going to get into this uh, possible complications of this chapter. I'll mention a couple things, but I want, to, I want to show you something to me that's very fascinating. In verse 16, it says, Then Cain went away. This is an eerie verse. You've got to read it like it's eerie. Imagine fog coming up. You know, trees with no branches are lining the street, and it says this. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. The land of Nod. It says he settled in the city. What I believe is going on is, for, first of all, he's ignoring this mandate of wandering and he settles. So he's, some, and I, I agree with him, some scholars are saying he's ignoring what God's will for him is. He's going to just do it on his own, so he's going to make his own city. Builds it in the land of Nod. I believe this land of Nod is the origin of the godless city. The secular city. The city without God. And we're going to find some primitive foundation stones of secularism in this city of Nod. The word Nod has a crazy etymology. The root word means uh, basically the idea of 
this is a town of wanderers. It's a, sh- a town that shakes. These people are never settled. They're nomads. There's some, there's some old children's books that took this phrase, the land of Nod, and the idea of Nod in the English language means to fall asleep. So this is a land of sleepwalkers. Kind of the same idea, nomadic sleepwalkers. And it's interesting, it's a perfect word for the secular city because the people living outside of God rarely ask, why am I here? What is my purpose? Where have I come from? Where am I going? They're sleepwalkers. They're mindless and they're directionless. They just do what everybody else has been doing. And watch the values that are set up. First of all, I believe that we're going to find the exact roots of the secular society in the land of Nod. First of all, it says Cain and his wife. So who's his wife? Basically, if you live for 900 years and your mom and dad keep having children, they'll have a lot of children. We're talking about it in the um, prayer partners. It's, it's almost like if you live 900 years, take a zero off that year. So when you were 300 years old, you probably got a body of a 30-year-old. When you're 400 years old, probably body of a 40-year-old. I don't know. But you can have a lot of kids for a lot of years. So we don't know the time frame. And so one person said, remember, people before the flood lived a long, long time and they are not under the same restrictions of marriage as we are today. Namely, marrying your sister was not considered incest until after the degradation of the body after the flood. I'm not going to go any more into that. It's for you to think about. So Cain and Abel... Verse, or Cain had a wife, in verse 17, she conceived and bore a boy by the name of Enoch. If you notice, he built a city. Look what he named the city. Enochville. It's Enochville. Named, named the city Enoch. So Enoch was his son, and he named the city after his son. And it's just like every secular society, people do things for the glory and fame of themselves. That's why we have Trump Tower. Van Andel Arena. Most every city we come to is named after somebody for the glory and the renown of self. In Enochville, it's all about me, as it is in every secular city. Second thing, cultural values, like what constitute marriage, family, morality, are self-determined, and they are no longer God-ordained. Look at um, verse 18. To Enoch was born... Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujlai, I don't know that name, fathered Methushael, Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. Wait, I thought a man would leave his father and mother and be united to his one wife. Ah, Lamech is um, starting polygamy, something new. Polygamy is self-determined instead of God-ordained. And it's introduced by this jerk of a man, Lamech. And you'll see what I mean by he's a jerk. This guy's terrible. He's a tyrannical patriarch that does what he wants and takes what he wants. And he decides to have two wives. Sounds a lot like Muhammad. You can't speak against Lamech because his great-great-grandfather started the city and now he's the mayor. So what are you going to do if he wants to have two wives? He's two wives. One commentator writes, everywhere you find in Scripture, polygamy always leads to suffering, unpleasantness, and domestic turmoil. It's still true. The more domestic or the more secular society determines values, the crazier morality gets. It's so true. 
The more the secular society determines values, the crazier morality gets, like marriage, family, gender, life, sexual pleasure. Everything's flexible. Everything's changeable. Everything's what you want to self-determine. Third thing about this city is the immediate goal of secularism is human excellence. It's interesting. Lamech has uh, two wives, Ada and Zila. Ada means she's gorgeous, pleasant to the eyes. Zila means she, some say tinkling, like she probably wears a lot of jewelry. Others said she likes to hide. So people say Ada's the pretty daughter. Zila's the kind of one that hides. She's not pretty. But you notice they're talking about how pretty everybody is because they have a sister later named Nema, who means her name means pleasant and beautiful. Then you got Jabel. He's got three sons. Jabel is the first animal husband. He's the first farmer. Took care of livestock. And then you have Jubal. He was the first musician, a guy who could really play music. And then you have Tubal, the first tool and die specialist, metallurgy, worked with metals. They built the city that had human excellence. That's what every city were about, creating great things. And I also think it's the grace of God giving skills to make things out of nothing. Then the fourth thing is government is built on might. Lamech, this guy's bad. Look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wife, Ada and Zila, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And Cain's revenge is sevenfold, and Lamech, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Here's what he's basically saying. You cross me, eye for an eye, brother. I'm going to tear you up. I'll even go after you. I don't care how old you are. That's how it is in a secular world. It's all about power. And who can get it? Even Democrats and Republicans fight for it. It's all they want. Even with checks and balance system like ours, power still corrupts. And Lamech no longer has pity, man. You know what? God said, I'm going to judge people 70 times 7. It's an interesting phrase. Remember what Jesus said about 70 times 7? Forgive. 70 times 7. Forgive. It's a lot, a lot of time. Have you used up your 490 yet? Or are you like Lamech? You judge 490 times. So life outside of Eden isn't looking good in the land of Nod. We have already in one chapter, listen to what we got. In one chapter, they get kicked out of the garden. We've got jealousy, murder, deceit, tyranny, and moral deviancy, the one sin of Adam has already begun its strange work. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Why didn't God just quit when he's ahead? Should have quit at chapter 3. Chapter 2 is when he should have quit, right? Well, all of history is leading somewhere to one man, the man of mercy. You'll, call, you'll catch small glimpses of it everywhere. Watch how this chapter ends. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called him his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel. God has given to me because I lost. He has given to me. She no longer says, I brought forth this man. She says, God gave him to me. That's another word for grace. 
It reminds me of a murderer in the New Testament. Paul says, even though I was the least of the apostles, I was the worst offender. By the grace of God, I am what I am. God still gives, even though I've sinned. Even though murders come on the scene, God still gives. God still gives grace through his Son. And when he gives grace to his Son, look at how it ends. To Seth also was born. He called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. When grace is given, then people are brought back to be able to worship again. Grace is given so you can come back and worship again. Are you living in the land of Nod? It's interesting how it says, in the land of Nod, you'll be a wanderer. Everything seems shaken. You get weary. You get tired. You get burdensome. But in Hebrew, it said there's coming another city, a city where it's a blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel, a city that's unshakable. Are you weary and heavy laden? There's, there's a firstborn son that is given by God that will come and give you rest. He's a shepherd that is gentle and humble in spirit. Who died, was murdered, but he came back again. Are you weary? Are you tired? Let's pray and Jared, you can come up and lead us in a song. Father, thank you for this passage and help us, God, to be careful of our pride. Help us not to lie and hide. Father, help us to do things for your glory and turn to you. We love you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.